Welcome to the Aesthetic City podcast. In this show, we aim to discover how to go forward and create a better, more beautiful and livable built environment. I'm Ruben Hansen, your host and founder of The Aesthetic City, a content platform that is created to help solve the problem of how to improve our built environment by making it more beautiful, attractive, livable and long-lasting. Today's guest is an urbanist, developer and writer living in New York City. He's a former real estate analyst, but left his company to co-found Backyard, a real estate startup. He studied urban and environmental planning at the University of Virginia and writes for the Metropolis column for Medium. We actually met through Twitter where he posts about good urbanism and similar topics. And we got along great from the start. So please welcome from New York, Kobe Lefkowitz. Welcome Kobe, great to have you here. Thank you so much Ruben for having me. I'm really excited for the conversation today and get to join a, a list of some really uh, you know, remarkable conversations you've had so far and hopefully add to that. Yeah, my pleasure. It's uh, I think we we met uh, yeah through Twitter where you have an excellent account where you yeah write a bit more of course about the American perspective, which is still kind of new to me. But uh, yeah, let let's just uh, dive right into uh, some questions. So, um, Kobe, you studied urban and environmental planning, and uh, before that, real estate development. So yeah, how was that experience, and why did you pivot from real estate to urban and environmental planning at some point? So I started school off at NYU, New York University, kind of in my backyard from, from where I grew up. And when I was there, my first year of college, I was playing basketball, uh, which is what brought me to NYU. And I was one of the first classes in the undergraduate real estate development program, which which was very cool. NYU didn't have a formal architecture program. And I don't know if at that time it was something that I was as interested in Um mainly because I had an experience in high school taking a design class and I loved it. It was one of my favorite classes I, I, I took in high school, but I was terrible. <laughs> it, it was probably <laughs> one of my worst classes in high school. Uh, I, I enjoyed it as much as one could getting a C, you know, which might have been <laughs> one of my few C's in, in high school. Yeah. Um, and so I, I had this assumption that I, I wasn't much of a designer. I wasn't much of an architect, but I still wanted to be involved in the built environment in some way. And real estate development enables you to do that without being as technically gifted. Um, so for the first year, I, I was at NYU. I was playing basketball. I, I ultimately ended up transferring down to the University of Virginia uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, which is a, a really beautiful and lovely small town. And while I was looking through courses, there were analogous programs uh, in, in the Commerce School at Virginia to real estate development. Not exactly the same as NYU's. NYU's at, at that point had one of the few undergraduate real estate development programs. So it was more of a general business degree and, yeah. and you have concentrations in real estate finance. But I, I figured as I was looking through all these these classes, you can always learn the numbers, right? Real estate development is at its core a financial industry and there's a lot of Excel modeling that goes with that. But you can't quite learn the softer skills of design. You kind of have to be imbued in that environment. And that had been something I was always fascinated by. So with this experience in high school of, of not being great with, with, with architecture, having a little bit of background you know, at NYU doing real estate development, I knew I wanted to marry both of those disciplines without being too firmly within one and the other. As I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit of time, marrying this notion of being a developer and, and a design for developer, really giving thoughtful considerations yeah. to this. And so the middle ground ended up being urban planning, 
where you're thinking through kind of broader city level trends from a design perspective, but also from an economic perspective. You know, where should housing go? How should we be routing certain transit lines? How does that interplay with some development processes within the city? And that program was cited within the architecture school at, at UVA. So it gave me the environment to understand design at a more intimate level than I had uh, previously been exposed to and something that I was really looking forward to. Um, but it also allowed me to still, in my own way, craft a discipline focused on planning or, under, or, or development, knowing that I wanted to go back into that field, um, but with this more design-centric focus. Yeah. Yeah, because you're yeah pretty outspoken on uh, on urban matters on Twitter. So when did you actually start your Twitter account? Because you have a lot of planners on Twitter, uh, but not all of them have this really outspoken, amazing Twitter channel. I'd I'd been th using Twitter for many years. It's a really yeah. great platform if you make it work for you. It's very easy to slip into the morass of uh, the toxicity that a lot of social media can have but oh, if yeah. you yeah if you tailor it more towards your interests and meet great people like yourself and and other kindred yeah. spirits That's i think trick. it's a trick it could be really powerful um i hadn't been someone who was posting a lot of my thoughts i was more of a uh, a fly on the wall as it were or a wallflower observing a lot of really interesting folks who, who have great thoughts whether it's from development planning design and all those disciplines where they intersect Um, but over the course of seven, eight, nine years, I had accumulated all of these notes, just general observations of whether it's walking through cities, articles I had read, work in the professional field in development. And in drips and draps, I had begun to talk about that on Twitter to no real audience. <laughs> you know, it was not intended for any audience. It was really much more, um, to, to have almost a record of those thoughts in 2020, I guess a couple of months after uh, the world shut down with the pandemic, I began writing to try to synthesize some of these thoughts and observations that I had for, for years yeah. prior. For no audience, again, just I had all these notes in, in notebooks and in my, in my phone on post-it notes strung up everywhere. And I had no real way to make sense of them because they weren't quite coherent. It was pretty haphazardly a rough shot. I'd I'd walk with my phone out typing like this. Okay, that's a great cornice line there. And this street appears to be 15 feet wide and there's mixed use here and, and here's the composition of, of the urban fabric. Cool, but it yeah. was very scatterbrained, right? And so writing was a discipline kind of in the strictest sense of the word um, to get those thoughts together and, and kind of put them out to the world. Um, When that began, I, I kind of, in a small way, began uh, taking some of those thoughts and, and bringing them towards Twitter, again, with no intention of, of building any audience. Um, but through that that time, I, I started getting connected with a couple folks in, in the development world and in the planning world, uh, specifically on Twitter, um, and learning from them, which I think is to the point of tailoring your, your social media consumption in, in a proper way. Um, where I could see where their voices were coming from, where their perspectives were. And I, in some ways, saw a void where there was a lot of folks who were talking strictly about yeah. planning, transportation planning, a lot of folks who talk strictly about development and the numbers. And to, to your podcast and 
perhaps some of the listeners to it, those who are purely concerned with aesthetics of cities. My understanding was that there, there really wasn't anybody talking about the intersection of all of those disciplines. Yeah. So how do you create cities and how do you think through the composition of cities uh, that are not just fundamentally lovely places and aesthetically pleasing places, but you know fundamentally good places, but that can also get built. Real yeah. estate at its core, as I, I mentioned, it, it's a financialized industry. And so we can have these grand idealizations and be quixotic in how we think through places. But if we can't get them realized, it's little better than sketches on, on a paper, which are great. You know, th that's that's the core of how any place is realized. Um, and so it was through my writings and through talking with a lot of folks in all these varied disciplines that I began to synthesize a, a realm that I, I didn't think was being yeah. talked about enough, which is, you know, the center of all of these things. Yeah, because it is a um, very fresh and young and uh, original take on things. At least I always think your your tweets stand out in a, in a cool way. So, yeah, and I also agree that um, Twitter can be very toxic. And I completely recognize that how if you tailor who you follow, you get a perfect timeline almost with only interesting things. <laughs> right. And sometimes it, it you need to clean it up a bit and then it improves further. But also my own account is, of course, um, yeah, a lot of aesthetics, of course. Uh, it wasn't, it was meant to be a bit more takes, but I find myself very <laughs> occupied with, yeah, like the things outside of my Twitter channel, which is a bit, let's say, time consuming. Yeah, I think the medium for Twitter, it privileges more pithy text and, and, and not, not as much. You know, there's people who, who write threads and who are terrific at that. But yeah. the nature of scrolling is such that you want to see something that draws you in, that interests you. And maybe you have a small caption, but it's really the, the, the image that, that folks are looking at. And as you say, whether it's through a podcast, whether it's through writing, those are perhaps better mediums to fully flesh out your ideas and, and have a conversation through them. And yeah. so it's presenting you know, different stories to different people, depending on how they take in information best. And I think yeah. it's, it's a very comprehensive effort. Yeah. 100%. And um, so you had a background in real estate and then you learned urban planning and you started thinking about all the things you saw and tried to merge them through writing into your views, if I'm correct, about how your views developed. You also do recognize the value of aesthetics in, in mm -hmm. urban scape. And that's already a very big step for some people to take. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say it was not a preordained effort to where I am today. It was, it was very... Uh, haphazard in many senses, but certainly I, I think that's a good distillation of, of how I've arrived at where I am. Um, and aesthetics has, has always been important to me um, because I, I think fundamentally beautiful places are better than places that are not beautiful. Yeah, that's <laughs> and, already a breakthrough thing, actually. <laughs> which is incredible. It, it's, yeah. it's, we've talked about this before, but it, it seems as though uh, it, it's some sort of hearsay to go against general consensus, to to just say, hey, I, I like places that have a certain form or, or style or, or that are prettier than not. And I, I think 99% of the, the general populace believe so as well. But perhaps some of the larger and more prominent voices in the field, um, you know, think in some ways that it, it's not to say regressive, but that there's a time and a place for historic structures or, or structures that are 
more traditional in their orientation. And that time is in the past. And we need to move forward with more contemporary styles of architecture, some of which are really good. But I think a lot of what we've seen over the last century is, uh, you know, in fact, grounded in modernist ideology of, of this rejection of the past and th this notion that we should almost be provocative in the built environment for the sense of pushing the the standards forward or, or, or art. Yeah, for its know, own sake. Notion, exactly, forward, which is great if, if you're using a, a medium of, of portrait or painting or poetry or, or novels, <laughs> yeah. but it's not quite something when people have to live in these environments for 50, 100 years and, and can't get away from them. Um, that I think is the best place for, for these ideas to be represented, um, especially at the expense of oftentimes communities that have been raised and, and, and torn down for these grand visions that are just almost anti-human at, at their core. Uh, but that's perhaps another conversation. Yeah, exactly. During your studies, did they ever focus on things like beauty or was it something completely and and when did you start to think hey this might be important or was it also like through osmosis on twitter yeah so i think beauty is in some ways viewed academically as an abstract concept it's a very subjective one right everyone yeah. has different ideas of what it what is or isn't beautiful there's been a great wealth of research in recent years trying to understand and as a previous guest of yours, Dr. Nir Baras has, has talked to um, why we're intuitively attracted to certain places, to say nothing of subjective notions of beauty, but from a, yeah. a real core neurological attraction. And that's something that I, I think in the future will be taught in, in design schools. It's, it's currently not because it's, it's a burgeoning field. Um, that's almost to say that notions of what is beauty or what isn't are, are kind of verboten. Um, they, it's not, you, you never want in school to impose a certain ideological set of beliefs, what is or isn't good. And ironically, perhaps we've had very modern <laughs> uh, and modernist uh, ideologies imposed on a lot of students um, who aren't free to find what, what their true design sense is. Um, so it, it wasn't taught through school, and that's not to to put down um, my experience at, at the Arctic School at UVA because I absolutely loved it. It's not taught at almost any school. I think the only undergraduate architecture programs in America yeah. who touch on it are Notre Dame and, to an extent, Miami. So these are very small circles that have been early to the punch with, with pioneers leading those schools. Yeah. I have a, a great deal of, of reverence for those who are doing that. Um, I think I kind of backed into it not not to make it seem as though everything I've done has is, is been haphazard, but um, trying to identify the places that I really like and understand why I like them. There are scientific and evolutionary reasons why, you know, biological and evolutionary reasons why we're attracted to certain places, which gives you some of that language to why you like them. But I don't think you learn that until you're well into your process of saying, I walked down the street and it was re really lovely. Uh, and I, I see this building here and it was it was quite, quite profound and it, it made me take a step back. Um, it's not until you have a couple of years of aggregating those experiences that you go and look for the language to explain uh, why yeah. you feel that way. Yeah, but on the other hand, 
it is so intuitive and it's such mm-hmm. common sense. As a child, you also used the word beautiful and you didn't need any academic training to learn what you found beautiful or not. Uh, yep. And people yeah, intuitively find a city like Florence, for, for example, beautiful. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I guess those neurologic, neurobiological factors are extremely important. But I guess the reason we don't use it for design nowadays is because designers are uncomfortable with having their freedom limited in whatever way there is. Mm-hmm. Evidence-based design will limit your freedom and might limit your, your innovation in some way because you might come back to the same point, and which is a certain urban pattern. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it's... But to, to that point, you look around the world at, at various vernacular, whether you're in, in Eastern Asia, South America, Africa, the Middle East, Europe, or the United States, and traditional forms of, of urbanism might have similar compositions. Of course, U.S. cities don't have the medieval fabric that a European city might, or uh, the, the more organic carving nature of of North African cities. But there's a lot of similar elements. The architecture is almost entirely different, right? And so I don't know such that, or to the extent that one might feel limited within those confines of traditional form. You can just look all around the world and say, it's just not a foundation. The foundation is functionally the same, walkable environments that are human scale that use a certain uh, quality of material that's very attractive to people. But the architecture, think about in in, in South Korea versus uh, perhaps uh, Syria or versus uh, France and Bolivia. Very, very different, but there might be similar underlying patterns. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So yeah, what is your mission in the field of urban development and real estate? What, What do you want to beat the drum on? If I could beat the drum on one thing, it's that we can create really high quality environments in, in beautiful places um, and that there don't need to be these inherent trade-offs that are often um, used as rationales for why we can't create great places. So it's inherently an optimistic message that we can, through the practice of real estate development, realize places that are beautiful because in fact, Almost all of our cities have been realized through these forms. Buildings cost a lot of money uh, wherever you are in the world. And of course, if you're building with marble versus straw and, and, and mud, there's going to be different co- costs associated. But in America, for example, there if you're choosing between a vinyl-sided home um, or, or perhaps hmm. a veneer um, versus using actual bricks or, or using clapboard, there may be increases in cost, but when you're underwriting uh, a model, when, you, when you're going through a deal, they're really not so exorbitant. It, the, the difference is, is not that great. What happens, I think, a lot of times is that developers in the United States use a lot of leverage. There's a lot of risk associated with it. And so their numbers get very tight. When you're looking at a, a a piece of land and you're trying to generate a return for both you and your investors, you have to have a a certain hurdle that you achieve. If your models are very risky and they're prone to uh, perhaps you're not being as as resilient to swings in a market or to cost increases, then you're going to have to cut all of your materials down. So we might've used brick, now we're gonna use veneer. 
We might have yeah. had 12 foot ceilings. We're going to use eight now. Um, I think that if you're thoughtful earlier in the process of building and of acquiring properties, um, and, and this isn't to say that every property should be a masterpiece. I think there's you know just a base level fundamental goodness in, in certain properties that in the U.S. unfortunately we haven't we haven't gotten. Um, you you can go from there, and so it requires from day one to say I want this property or this building or, or this site, whatever it may be, to adhere to certain standards. Um, it doesn't mean that we need to do it in marble. It doesn't mean that it, it needs to be 20 foot ceilings and ex extravagant. You can have very simple buildings that are quite lovely as we've seen throughout the world. Yep. Um, and that comes, you know, one with how these buildings interact with the street. If it's set back 20 feet from the street, if there's on an acre large plot uh, and the design is, is still rather simple, it's going to feel with cheaper materials, it's going to feel much different than if that same exact building were built right up on the street in a row home typology, let's say, with those same materials. The impact one would get moving through that space is almost entirely different. Um, now, of course, if you take that great foundation and then you marry fantastic design, higher quality materials, you get these places that are almost ethereal in their beauty. Yeah. Uh, and, and so now we're talking of the Florences of the world, the Romes, the Parises that marry great urban form with fantastic design realized through real estate development. I, I think it's something that's lost on a lot of designers and planners um, and folks who aren't on the financial side. Not to say those on the financial side don't have their uh, short-sightedness because I think it's oftentimes more profound than, than those on the design side. Um, you know, think that real yeah. estate, uh, people on the design side think that real estate just happens and that historically it just hmm. happened and that there was no uh, investment into any of these properties. But real estate development is a very old industry. It's not as though people have been practicing it for 50 years. So there's this, we can romanticize places such as Rome or Florence or, hmm. or Paris or whatever city it may be. Um, but we need to understand that those places were built through capital, through merchants yeah. who would take the proceeds from whatever trade they were in and they would build their own shop and then five or six apartments above and they would rent them out. I mean, there was there were landlords in ancient Rome. This isn't to say that landlording as a practice is in its modern senses uh, entirely enlightened because it's not. There's a really a lot of really bad landlords. Um, but this notion that our cities just came to be without capital enabling them to do yeah. that is just historically wrong. Um, and so I think we need to, we, we the pendulum has shifted way too far to only speculative capital. It needs yeah. to shift now to say, we need to create more human places, but it is that direct intermediary between great design and great returns is yeah. in great places. Do you think centralization of capital has a big part in this? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've written a couple of pieces on the increased institutional investment in real estate without diving too deeply into it. Over the last 30 or 40 years, there have been increased capital allocations by pension funds, by insurance agencies, by, by large institutional investors generally. And they have certain return thresholds that, that, that must be hit. And they're very conservative investors. They have to be. If you're running an insurance agency, or, or rather a pension fund is perhaps a better example, and 
you have to have secured payments to all of your pensioners. You can't yeah. take on a very speculative development that is very ornate and might have cost overruns and won't get you your base returns. So there's pressure from those who are funding uh, development, which is increasingly centralized in fewer and fewer parties, to say, strip all of the excess away, make this a very plain structure, um, give me something that will give me my return effectively. And you can understand the logic of that from the investor's perspective. Um, and you can understand from those who are working on behalf of the, the investors. Um, but what we get is an environment that's yeah. very transactionalized, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, well, well, when you think logically, you think just look at the places that do really well over hundreds of years. You would want to invest in those places, right? You want to make those places. But do you think, yeah, there is a mismatch between the knowledge of some of the designers that know what walkability and those all those concepts can bring and the knowledge of the yeah real estate investors who would use this knowledge for their own advantage? Unfortunately, I think there is a pretty big gap. There are those in real estate who are thinking through this and increasingly so. It gives me a lot of hope. And yeah. in my small way, perhaps in, in, in your way as well, we can influence that conversation and bring in more real estate practitioners um, and investors and developers to understand the value in creating better places and human-oriented places, which is happening more and more. And that's great. Um, it's still not nearly enough to see the result in the built environment. Um, a lot of designers and architects are expressly trained on these ways of thinking for years. They go yeah. to school for it. You, you go four or five years undergraduate, maybe another two to four graduate, and sometimes you might take a PhD. So you're very well versed in these worlds and, and reading certain texts, um, generally, if you're in architecture school or, or in planning school. Um, more specifically, back to our conversation uh, or, or our topic, rather, on the types of things that are taught in school, there is an increased focus, <clears throat> excuse me, on walkability and, and creating fundamentally good environments. Um, the, taking away this notion of a single building existing in a vacuum, ignorant of its context, which is, I think, been much of what design schools taught over the last 50, 60 years. Um, we're moving away from that. And so yeah. designers and architects are trying, or not trying, they're relearning these more traditional forms of building, whereas most um, developers and investors have never known them because they have yeah. no <laughs> yeah. it, It's we, we call it in the space spreadsheet architecture because the design is dictated by extracting as much value out of a, a land as you can. And so it's, you know, for, for whatever one qualms might have with modernist architecture or modernist planning, and there's certainly many that one might have, those are at least bounded in a lot of thoughtfulness in design and thinking through how that space might operate. Now, it might not operate to the benefit of humans. It might be more towards cars. Um, but those, I don't think anybody could say, are unthoughtful places. That you know, There's yeah. a lot of consideration given to them. For most real estate development in the American context, and I know a bit in the European context, there's zero thoughtfulness. Um, that's increasing. It's still only a, a very small percent of developers and investors who are there. Um, so that, that gap I hope is shrinking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, 
Could you maybe tell me what would your practical step-by-step idea be to get to these more beautiful walkable environments if you had the capital? What would your way be to work towards these environments without encountering spreadsheet architecture, <laughs> all the, the pitfalls? So I think it goes back to the notion of centralization versus decentralization. Though you and I spend a lot of time considering cities, space, architecture, aesthetics, and we might have very fine senses of what we think good places are. The foundation comes when many of great places come with many hands work together to realize them. So we, you and I may have slight differences over a certain building or two. As long as they adhere to core fundamental, the core fundamentals of good urbanism and, and good design, um, those differences would be beautiful. You know, as lovely to, to use an example in New York as Brownstone Brooklyn is, it can feel a little bit rigid because every structure looks the same. Um, I think you know to to go to Amsterdam where you're recording this from, um, a lot of the the homes on the canals have differences. They may be subtle differences. Some may be more profound, right? But the beauty is that every structure tells its own story. So whether you're starting from a greenfield development where you're going to take 100 acres and build ground up, or you're starting from an existing fabric of a city, I think the importance is to not have one master planner or master developer say, I know best, here's how it should look. Yeah. It's to bring in many hands, many eyes, many ears into the process with the goal of, of building forward. You know, I think in, in the US, when we talk of this pendulum shift with, with real estate finance, how it shifted all towards spreadsheet architecture to this level of creating places, places, um, for the broader building practice, we've shifted from early 20th century and the entire historical legacy before then of continuing to build and iterate and expand upon our cities um, to this post-modern sensibility of um, we're not going to enable anything to be built. Um, there's this nimbyism that gets talked about almost ad nauseum, yeah. but it, it's it's an important um, drum to beat, as it were. The What we have to be moving forward with is we our cities have many real challenges, whether from affordability or equity or sustainability perspectives. Um, but the way to create better places isn't to ossify them and knock on every single door and say, what do you want to happen to your neighborhood? Because when you go ask people, you know, to change their neighborhood, they're they're not going to to welcome that. And yeah. so the, the pendulum must shift a little bit away from every single person in a neighborhood having uh, an opinion on what should or shouldn't be done. Um, but still within this context of decentralized voices, where it's not one person saying everything must be done this yeah. way. It's not every person saying everything must be done every different way. Uh, there needs to be a middle ground, all marching towards the notion of creating better places. And I think, you know, to talk on w what I really w would like to see from a, a pragmatic perspective is is communities adopting um, this ethos before you can go forward and build. Because once they do, it'll we will have the ability, um, and maybe this is a case of the chicken versus the egg, um, yeah. to move away from a world in which everything is so stringently zoned and planned, and that every building needs approval that might take two or three years to, to you know, 
get realized, yeah. which exacerbates our existing crises, to one where because people um, are clamoring for, for better development and better spaces, and they want to take control of their communities, they're saying, let's do away with zoning in its traditional you know, Euclidean forms in the U.S., and certainly that's been exported around the world. Let's do away with traditional planning that has this very strict hierarchy of what can and can't be done. Um, let's just focus on creating good places and how can we do that? So it's that veers yeah. sometimes into the world of being really uh, quixotic that, okay, Ruben, you ask, well, Kobe, how can you make this realistic? Um, we underwrite hundreds of deals to try to create better places, but there are many and real barriers um, to us actually realizing them. And because those barriers are so severe, it privileges those with more capital uh, yeah. who have much more money and can weather permitting processes through the city, who can spend millions of dollars on, on permits and approvals. And it, it disincentivizes and it, it actually prohibits smaller developers and smaller communities from shaping the places and their places into what they want them to be, which is historically how every great community has been built. No great community throughout history has ever been one person saying this is how it should look. It has been every person, you know, yeah. in, what, individually what, contributing. Would you name some of those obstacles? Yeah. So I think in the U.S., and obviously this is different for listeners who might be around the world, um, zoning is, is a massive barrier. It's very prescriptive. It, it might say in one neighborhood, you can only build one home per one acre and within that that's already fairly restrictive but it needs to be set back 20 feet from the street it can only occupy 30 percent of the lot it needs to be at least 4,000 square feet and so what you have in effect is that designers or architects or even developers aren't dictating what a building would look like it's bureaucrats and planners uh, in, in city departments who are saying here's the box that your building must be fit within and go run through with that design. What you have in a lot of municipalities in the US is that those codes are so onerous that they effectively result in a lowest common denominator building. And that's a, a large reason why a lot of development looks the same in the US um, because the codes yeah. force it to be. So that that's certainly a big barrier. I'd say um, because of that, that uh, strictness in, in land, um, especially with, with minimum lot sizes, um, it makes land more expensive and yeah. it makes the process of, you know, dealing with all of those regulations much more expensive. Um, and the regulations are, are numerous so that the land becomes more expensive, which then requires you to have a lot more capital. The process to get that land entitled and then built upon becomes much more expensive until everyone's basically inflating their costs to meet whatever the city's, um, you know, scarcity policies are, are resulting in such that um, that now you, you, you're in a situation with only the wealthiest parties are, are able to contribute to an environment, which is bad. Yeah. And so, you know, we could talk about before even getting into aesthetic considerations, um, you know, how to create places that are more beautiful. But before we can even get there, we have to allow places just to be built, period. <laughs> yeah. 
Ja, 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 100%. So, so taking away zoning or at least simplifying it uh, would be one of the best ways in your opinion. I think so. And then, yeah, according to Chuck Marone, author of Strong Towns, most American cities are financially insolvent because the tax base of the suburbs cannot financially support um, the infrastructure they built yeah, to serve these areas. So they are, in effect, ticking time bombs, waiting for decay and decline. Um, um, so yeah, that, that's, a, that's a huge looming problem. Um, and it also touches on... Yeah, the density of suburbs, actually the lack of density of suburbs. And mm -hmm. do you see when, yeah, current zoning regulations are lifted uh, or at least changed, do you think it will be possible to redevelop suburbs in a more dense way, like recreating areas with, with the missing middle housing, for instance, just around the, the city center? Do you think something like that is possible or is it way too expensive to... Yeah, to change the infrastructure. It, it's a really great question. It's a really great question. And I'd start by saying Chuck Marone and, and the team at Strong Towns, and I know Joe Minicosi has been doing work for quite some time at Urban 3, um, which is, uh, it's not a sister organization, but they do a lot of work with one another. Yeah. I've been talking about this for many years, making it fashionable today. When, when they began talking about suburbs being functionally insolvent, um, they were in, in many ways laughed at, sure, but ridiculed and called heretics. How could you go against this sense of uh, how America became the most prosperous and economically vibrant country in, in world history? It's because of the suburbs. It's because of the highways. It's these development patterns that have delivered us <laughs> our, our prosperity. For them to say, well, okay, maybe, but it's something that Strong Towns now calls the growth Ponzi scheme. Um, these are ticking time bombs, to your point, Ruben. Um, was very bold, was very brave, and was very difficult, I'm sure. Now there's more consensus amongst yeah. those who are in this space that, that this is in fact true. So I, I think I would start by that, saying that it's it's not just a couple of loud folks on the internet saying, screaming conspiracy theorists, our suburbs are going yeah. bankrupt, you know, our suburbs are falling apart. Yeah. It's true. The it's basic math, right? Yeah. It's basic math. To go back to the one home on one acre and even one home on one half acre or one fourth of an acre, when you limit what the density of a place can be, that doesn't change the core cost of infrastructure. A pipe is going to cost what a pipe is going to cost. Labor has been increasing, which is a good thing. You know, labor prices should be compensated. Um, more than they've been in, in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, materials costs are increasing. The costs of maintenance are increasing, especially yeah. in America. We like to build new things. That's very fun. We don't like to maintain them. So when infrastructure deteriorates, it becomes more expensive. All of these costs are real and they need to be paid for. So if your home, if you're on one acre of land, um, on, on a, Joe Minicosi does these studies, which is why I've, I've mentioned him in the team at Urban 3 um, in the beginning of this, this point, um, where these homes may be paying large taxes in aggregate. Let's call it 5000 6000 8000 In some cities, it might be $30,000, $50,000 an acre. But when you compare it to more fine-grained urbanism, it pales in comparison to the tax revenues. You might be getting $100,000, $200,000 or more per acre in more urbane areas that are split between 
10, 20 properties or even one much larger property with many more people living in it. So um, the these cities, uh, these the suburbs rather, can't afford all of those costs. And the only way they've been able to be paid for is because uh, we subsidize new growth. Okay, a new highway will fix it. A new subdivision will fix it. And yeah. we'll take those development fees and impact fees and we'll pay off the declining infrastructure of the last one. Well, that can only go so far. It's a house of cards. And, and ultimately, those cards are going to fall. So yeah. I, I think we have the existing infrastructure, I would start by, and this might be a controversial notion, saying, you know, if, if you're more than 30 miles outside of a core city, New York, you know, it, it's a much larger city, but let's say you're in a smaller city like Oklahoma City or Milwaukee, perhaps, you know, great places. Um, we should not be focusing any infill development on areas that are more than five, 10 miles outside of the town. Um, and in many cities, much closer because we can do much more infill work. So it yeah. would look more like urban infill before suburban retrofit. And only when we have sufficient public transit, whether it be bike lanes, whether it be subways, which are very expensive, bus rapid transit routes are probably the best way of going. Um, would we be able to um, then think about missing middle within the suburbs if they can yeah. support it? Because the infrastructure is there. It's the same infrastructure that you're getting in the cities. Um, so this notion, I think, when when NIMBYs talk about we, we can't support more homes, it'll strain the infrastructure. It's the same infrastructure in the cities where you know th there might yeah. be three thousand people on an, you know uh, on a block versus ten on a smaller block in the suburbs. So yeah. uh, the infrastructure is there, but we shouldn't. It, it's not a question of whether we can or we can't. We shouldn't force people into car dependency out in the suburbs. Um, if we can avoid it, we should really focus on much more infill development unless yeah. suburban development is proximate to transit. Yeah, yeah, some transit-oriented uh, development. Mm -hmm. And uh, But I also directly have to think of the of a lot of central business districts, the city centers in American cities. Uh, a lot of them are just towers and parking lots. And I must say that sometimes you see these huge parking lots just in the <laughs> center of the city, which is very weird for like, for European to see, because that would be very inefficient. And yeah, I mean, here in the Netherlands, we are extremely crowded. So, um, but uh, you would say that if you build in the city center, it would be possible to develop something there or yeah, or the ground pass is way too, too high because I mean, it's a central business district after all, and they have these parking requirements <laughs> and they probably don't want to let go of these parking requirements. Yeah. Which, which, what is the first problem you have to solve to make sure you could actually fill in on those areas to build, to build out the center again and then to start from there? What's the first thing you have to do? It's a great point with, you know, zoning is a major issue, but it's not the only one. Um, kind of attendant with zoning, you have a lot of regulations, some of which I've mentioned, but, but certainly parking minimums. Um, are there many or any parking minimums in the Netherlands? Yeah, every new yeah housing development has a certain parking norm, as they call it. Uh, mm -hmm. So a parking requirement. So how many spaces per home? And yeah, they used in in some areas very far out of the city. They are yeah, of course, way higher. But they are now actually starting to work on a lot of uh, areas where there is a, a a parking norm of zero. So yep, no parked cars for anyone. Because everything is so close to traffic, it's it's basically transit-oriented development. 
but just on a very big scale, uh, like in Utrecht, which is uh, kind of a centrally located city, they are planning to redevelop a huge part of the city and they will have a parking norm of zero. But that's still kind of rare. So in the more progressive projects where they really take it quite far, it's a half, 0.8. But I guess it is in a lot of places, it's just like one or one and a half even, so you can accommodate visitors. Right. Uh, But I think in inner cities, we are already moving towards a lower parking norm, but in more rural areas, you know, there uh, it is, it's a bit higher. But I, I'm not sure how big of a problem it is in, in those areas. I, I think that the biggest problems are with these info locations where you have to redevelop a plot, which is in a pretty crowded area. And you need to build a parking garage, otherwise you can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can't build. So so that those are the, the tricky areas and everybody always wants to go underground, um, which is the most expensive. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. It, it's... Thank you for that perspective because it's uh, we can get in, in America so lost and and I, I think this goes for um, any country in the world and whatever experience that you, you personally have so you speak more to that um, but with American development it, I think hopefully it's now changing with Dutch development patterns um, the biggest barrier I, I would say are, are regulations such as parking minimums um, setback requirements unit size to a certain extent you know we shouldn't have units that are 50 square feet but we should have sros maybe 100 150 square feet uh that allows for more affordability within cities um but you can't get projects built um with with these requirements in the u.s if you have a two or three car per unit mandate um that parking required will either make it such that a majority of the site is a parking lot, to your point, Ruben, or that the development doesn't make financial sense because you might only be able to build five apartments and 15 <laughs> parking spots. And with the cost of land, it, it doesn't make sense to do that. So yeah. that would be the first barrier. And then, of course, land costs are, are high. I've written about this, and there, there are a lot of folks who have written about this as well, uh, pushing the needle on Twitter, who's in, urban oh, yeah. in Seattle, does a lot of yeah. good work um, here with uh, relative unit values. So, you know, if if land in the suburbs is a million dollars an acre, I'm making it up, or homes are a million dollars an acre, that means one unit of housing is a million dollars. If you can have two homes per acre, okay, now with costs, maybe it's $500,000, maybe a little bit more. But the more homes you enable per acre, the land price might be higher in the cities because land use economics, um, you know, have, have much stronger um, or, or, you know, the price of land is much higher yeah. because of land use economics in, in these cities. Um, but the relative value of each home will be worth less. So which which is good. You know, you want to be able to get a, a, a condo for two hundred thousand dollars as opposed to a single family home for a million all things being equal, that's that's better for affordability. It's in some ways better for sustainability. Not that we should do away with single family homes, so you can still build them. Charleston, South Carolina has a really fantastic legacy of building very dense single family homes yeah. that can be adjusted up or down units, you know, four units down to one, back and forth, and they can get converted throughout history. New York's townhomes have done this as well. So it's not to say single family homes are bad. I, you know, I love them in many ways, in many contexts. Um, but 
if you take away the regulations, you can allow the value of land to be unlocked for more units, um, which will bring about more broad and, and widespread affordability. Yeah. So I think that's where it starts. Um, but then we're, we're stuck in a difficult situation again, where only large developers can take on these projects now. Smaller developers can't, and they can't imbue the spirit and pride of a place that really only comes from folks who are building in their own backyard who or yeah. who moved there and have a vested interest in the place. So I think the answer is to enable so much density that um, land values start decreasing so that, you know, and, and there's arguments um, for ways to do that, whether it's through loosening up zoning or to enact land value taxes, which is Georgism, such that um, you, you penalize speculators and folks who aren't um, most optimally building on their land. Um, that's another conversation to, to yeah. have as well. Um, uh, but, but yeah. Uh, just to get a better idea about how it works politically in the United States, on which level are these regulations set? Is the is the city level, is it the state level, or is it even national? I wish it was the state level. I wish there was some core national zoning. It's very localized in, in the US. It's um, at a city level. Um, you see a lot of community plans that, uh, you know, sort of more localized neighborhood level that aren't necessarily uh, prescriptive zoning codes, but mm -hmm. you might not be able to get something built if you don't have the approval of a local community, which yeah. can be very difficult because it adds another layer of, of permits and processing. And back to our earlier point of um, wanting communities to be embraced, building to be embraced by communities and shaped by yeah. many hands. A lot of these community groups um, have only sprung up uh, just to oppose development. So it's another, <laughs> it's another layer to... Yeah. to get through unfortunately nimbies yeah the nimbies yeah, the you know we we won't say that, <laughs> that <laughs> they'll, they'll show up uh but um it's it's a political problem um there are other countries who do this much better i think that the example that american urbanists look to is is japan japan has has regional and then federal zoning policy yeah such that the um it, it's not a question of do you abide by each certain town's laws because you know Ruben could be building within Blue City and drive two minutes outside the border and now be in Red City and <laughs> a totally <laughs> different paradigm of development can exist there which you know could yeah. this is what happens in the US you know municipal borders as soon as you get beyond them for large cities you'll have single-family homes and suburbs and that effectively creates a barrier of, of unaffordability because they have very um, stringent uh, zoning regulations that yeah. pose scarcity and, and increase prices when there's high demand, which then puts more pressure on the center city, which can only do so much. So there needs to be a cooperation regionally um, amongst different municipalities. The issue in the United States is that no one wants to work with each other. If you've moved out to the suburbs, you don't care about what's going on in the city and vice versa. So yeah. there's no cooperation. Um, the way to, to get around that is to have either state level or federal level zoning, which I think you know Japan does very well. And, and it's a big reason why they, they have, uh, Tokyo is, is the largest city in the world, doesn't have an affordability crisis that cities a 10th of the size or a hundredth of the size have. So 
that's yeah. where I would move towards. You kind of have to take politics out of it. Um, and in the United States, it's impossible because, <laughs> and I imagine in every country around the world, it's it's deeply ingrained in, in <laughs> our, our democratic tradition. Um, but you need to supersede it and say, mm. we're, these are now, at this point, local control has failed in, in many ways, um, especially hyper-local control. There are now core human interests that the state or the federal government must step in to protect. Um, and I think once that's instituted, there will be a lot of meaningful change. The one thing I would note is a lot of folks get scared when, when you talk about this and they say, okay, well, you're going to build a skyscraper in my suburb now, or there's going to be an apartment building <laughs> on the farm. And that would never happen because it doesn't make any sense to build a 50 unit apartment building, <laughs> you know, an hour outside of the city on a farm. Yeah. Um, it, just as it doesn't make sense to build a single family home in the core of a, a, a central business district. So, uh, you know, or a core of a downtown, a central business district, this is just an aside. Um, I would love to do away with it because it's it's a segregated area. It, it almost means only offices, you know, can cannot be occupied here, and we should have much more mixed use and varied neighborhoods. But that's a that's a total aside. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's just unlocking certain levels of development to occur. And sure, we can have four or five broad zones: rural, semi-rural, village city. And I really don't think there should be suburban development. I think you should kind of be in a village. You should kind of be in a city. We're out in the countryside. Yeah. You know, this notion where everyone should get a backyard that's two acres and a white picket fence is um, unfortunately not a, a, a great development yeah. pattern. Um, so, but that's, yeah. Yeah. Are there any places in the United States uh, at this moment where they are actually doing quite well from your perspective? The there's a couple of smaller examples, um, but I think that's mainly because the land values are, are quite low and there's not a lot of demand to live there. So if, if you go to small farming communities around the United States, they they may very well have great urbanism, walkable streets. You know, there's a lot of towns in Kansas and Nebraska and Iowa that have this fantastic urban fabric and there's no sprawl. Yeah, but it's because um, mainly that the population isn't large enough to support it. Um, the, of larger cities where there is stronger demand, um, Oregon as, as a state, um, but Portland specifically, has uh, a very strong urban growth boundary. So there's a ring around the city and its core suburbs that development can't um, intrude on. And, and then there's farmland after. I was driving through Oregon last year and uh, I drove, I was in Eugene and I drove up to Portland and it's remarkable for yeah. in most American cities, when you're making that drive, it would be lined by strip malls, single family tract housing. Um, as far as the eye could see, much like what you would get if you're driving in Texas from Dallas to Fort Worth or Austin to Houston, um, yeah. you don't, or San Antonio rather, Austin to San Antonio and to some extent Houston. You don't get that in Oregon because they have very strong regional planning at, at a state level that ensures that there's a delineation between farms and, and town and country, effectively. Yeah. Uh, there needs to be more of it. I think we've talked about this. The, you know, the strictness of, of Dutch regional planning, I think, is fantastic, where 
you have, and I know there's still suburban development, but it's closer to the ideal of you have town here and you have country there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, and we're also growing against the, the limits of where we, well, especially in the West, we don't want to encroach too much on the precious bit of green landscape we still have left. Right. So we try to fill in, but even that is now really hard because we have a huge housing crisis. Right, which I think, you know, then the answer is you got to build up. And yeah. so that, that removes some pressures, but I know that there's pushback to say, well, we, we don't want to build too tall. You know, Paris has kind of built a density of five to nine stories, and it's it's quite lovely. Um, so, you know, I think Americans have to, as a group, we have to humble ourselves more and say, we don't know everything. We, we may have thought we did, but let's look for inspiration, whether it be Japan, the Netherlands, Spain has some, some good regional planning. Um, look around the world uh, for examples of doing it better because we're, we're not doing it well right now. What are your hopes for the United States? I think my my biggest hope is that this small group of, of folks, um, it, it's, it's growing every single day, which is really heartening to me, um, can have a more, this more meaningful impact on creating cities that are more beautiful, uh, more dense, more sustainable. Um, these idealized notions of, of living in a place um, and if I can have a small part in, in that movement, whether it's just writing my articles or, or sharing posts on Twitter, that'd be great. And, and then individually, uh, I, I run a company called Backyard where yeah. we, we build infill housing and through, through our company to be able to create the type of beautiful product in dense, walkable, vibrant neighborhoods um, would be a more meaningful um, on the ground intervention, but you know, I, I can't do it all. I, I don't have that scale. I don't want to do that to, to our earlier point. Yeah. So my broad hope is to be a small part in this broader movement to create better places in the United States, not just from a sustainability an affordability and an access to opportunity perspective, because that's really important. Um, but you know, which we've touched on a little bit. Yeah to create more beautiful places that people want to spend time in. I, I want American cities, especially the places where I live and spend a lot of time and selfishly. And I think more people should act out of that self-interest um, yeah. to be places where you want to spend time. So instead of having to, to travel halfway around the world to exist in a walkable environment uh, that you can feel real profound beauty in, um, I want that to be somebody's, you know, down the block from somebody. Yeah. And it, it should be decentralized so that it doesn't matter if you live in New York City or in a small town in Nebraska or Oklahoma. You should have access to that because as humans, we fundamentally are, are all attracted to the same type of places and we've evolved to be walkable beings, um, to be creatures who, uh, you know, are mobile on our feet and this notion that if you live out in the suburbs or if you live out in the countryside, you don't want to walk or you don't want to live near beautiful places uh, is is just in incredible. Yeah. So um, I, I think that would be my broad goal um, that to have a small part in that, whether it's in the conversation or, or actu actually building it um, all in the service of, of building more beautiful places. Yeah. 
yeah, what do you think is needed for a lot of Americans to to have that personal paradigm shift that they go from, hey, this is not possible, this is not for us, to, hey, this is possible and we could actually achieve this? It's a great question. It's it's the question, right, um, for how to realize these places. I think it's doing it. And, and the unfortunate thing about real estate, unlike almost every other industry, is that doing it takes a generation. <laughs> so <laughs> it may take me three years to build a smaller, two to three years to acquire and title, realize, lease up and stabilize a smaller project. Um, and that's just maybe it's four apartments or 10 or 20. But in order to institute the broader sweeping societal and city level changes, that's going to take decades. Um, and I think there's this, I've talked a little bit about this, this really strong opposition where folks will come out in arms against any level of change. And then once that change happens, there's no noise. There's no real praise. I mean, there might be in, in some way. And, and not that planners or, or developers or architects should, should seek that praise, but that um, this strong opposition that said, you're going to ruin our lives, this is going to lead to death and destruction, never materializes, and that these places <laughs> are just good places to live. I think that needs to be uh, you know, implemented across the country. And it only comes from doing so that people can experience it in their own neighborhoods. Because if you visit Florence or Amsterdam or London or Kyoto or uh, perhaps La Paz, you know, to, all, all around the world, you may say these are great places. And specifically in the U.S., you may go to New York or D.C. or Charleston or New Orleans or Santa Barbara and say, well, Santa Barbara has some, some real problems, um, but it's still a lovely place. Um, these places yeah. are great, but I visited them. It's not like my community. We can never do that in my community. You have to show people that you can do it in your community and that this is a great thing. Um, but that's the big challenge of the built environment that it takes time. If we were yep. to scale back regulations and restrictions, that generation might drop to 10 years and the three-year project might drop to a year, uh, which means that we can create more of these places and kickstart that flywheel ever faster. Um, but yeah, it, you know, yep. we can still show people and this is what both of us do on Twitter, that these places exist and whether they're older or, or newer in, in both of our cases um, and that there's no reason to oppose it. So you should embrace it. But ultimately, people will only embrace it, I think, or fully embrace it once they see that it's been done. Yeah. Perfect. I think that's a beautiful last statement. Thank you so much, Kobe. Thank you, Ruben. I really appreciated the opportunity to come on and, and talk with you. Me too. It was a pleasure. And uh, yeah, hopefully till soon. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Aesthetic City podcast. You can find Kobe on Twitter under the handle at Kobe Lefko. Find the link in the description below. Do you really like the mission of the Aesthetic City? Consider supporting us as a patron. The Aesthetic City really wants to grow and offer even more content. And with enough patrons, this continuation and further growth will be possible. So find our Patreon link in the description below. If you like this episode, please consider giving it a favorable review on Apple or Spotify. Find more information about this platform on theaestheticcity.com or follow our Twitter page. I hope to see you back soon. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>